Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This morning we will talk about a vision of victory. You ever seen victory? A vision of victory. This is a little bit futuristic. A great passage this morning, a triumphant passage on winning and losing. What do you think about when you think about winning and losing? War, sports, games. My wife thinks about Pictionary or something like that. Actually, she thinks about taco, cat, goat, cheese, pizza. John, you remember that game, don't you? Yes. <laughs> Business. Sometimes we talk about winning and losing in terms of our personal sicknesses, right? We're beating an illness or it's beating us. This year I had uh, unbelievable experiences as a basketball coach. Um, it's an interesting thing to coach a game. I'm usually on the wrong end of close games. It's been my history. I've had some really good teams, and we've won a lot of games big. But this year, three times, and I can remember each one of them very vividly, fighting, 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 competing in every game. Three times this year, we were ahead. I thought the game was won. Late, the other team makes runs, puts us down. And three times this year, my players came through with buzzer beaters. I've, I've never experienced that before. My players would tell you, one, the first one I laid on the ground and just like, they're all running around. I just laid down. I'd never experienced it before. It was just great joy, great fun. Sudden victory. Total victory. Sweet victory. <laughs> and funny, we have all these idioms in our language about victory. Even today, on the west side of town, there's a big event going on. And when they're done, someone will take a victory lap. You know. If Jesus rose from the dead, what does this mean? What does it mean for people? What does it mean for us? What does it mean for you? What does the truth of Jesus' resurrection say about what's going on in the world right now? The lunacy, the craziness, the present circumstances. And what does it say about the future? Paul answers these questions today for us by framing the last section of this great climax. Friends, we have three more messages in 1 Corinthians, and they're kind of the wrap-up. Some of the pedantic details. In one sense, this is certainly the climax of chapter 15, six messages. In another sense, this is the climax of the whole book. This is the bow on the present. Conversations about victory are usually reserved for official contests or battles. Maybe like a victory of an Olympic athlete. And as we said, victory is sought in the context of war. In 2017, uh, they remade, I, I'm a fan of World War II history, and they, uh, remade, they had a movie uh, that profiled Winston Churchill. And at that time, Winston Churchill declared, You ask, what is our policy? I can say it is to wage war by sea, land, and air with all our might and with all our strength that God can give us to wage war against a monstrous tyranny never surpassed in the dark, lamentable catalog of human crime. That is our policy. What is our aim, you ask? I can answer with one word, victory, victory at all cost, victory in spite of all terror, victory however long and hard the road may be, for without victory there is no survival. 
Winston Churchill. Victory then in our day and age also is not only understood as out there as something that we accomplish in a setting, but there are personal contexts for victory. As I said before, maybe somebody beats an addiction. Someone overcomes an unreasonable fear. Now we use the phrase personal victory. And this language now gets scaled back to the language of winning. I joked with Greg as we started. He's a big golfer. I said, well, the sermon doesn't play to you because you can never win in golf. You just keep playing. All right, Dave? <laughs> you, just, you play against yourself. Typical victory language gets scaled back to this idea of winning. We win a competition. We win a drawing. We win an office pool. We won a race. famous actor said, if I'm doing good in life, if I'm achieving, if I'm earning, if I'm climbing, if I'm purchasing, I'm winning. Whether it is out there in some unbelievably dramatic contest or whether it is here in your own life, victory needs two ingredients. There's got to be an enemy. There's got to be somebody to compete with. It may be other people. Co-workers, friends. It may be a power structure. The man or capitalism or my boss, the company. And it may be yourself, your habits, your bad choices, your family. But there is an enemy, yes? And two, the idea that it is better to win than lose. (laughs) Just two simple thoughts there as we introduce this. There must be an enemy. And the idea in this victory and defeat is it's better to win than to lose. And honestly, we all agree, right? Given the clear choice, who has ever chosen to lose? (laughs) You have not, and neither have I. And some may be more competitive than others. And in certain areas, people are competitive in other ways. But there's not anyone who's not competitive at all. We're all playing a game. And whether we set the rules or someone else does, we are wanting to win. So Paul's discussion here about victory that we will look at today is in reference to our ultimate enemy that we all want to beat. Death. The ultimate enemy that we all want to beat. Well, just to tie it up here in a nice little bow, I could go back through uh, 1 Corinthians 15 just quickly, just a little section at a time to tell us how we got here. In verses 1 through 11, we were presented with the evidence of Jesus' resurrection, how Jesus appeared to many people after he rose from the dead. 500 at one time. And lastly, Jesus appeared to Paul himself. In the next section, verses 12 through 20, we watched Paul teach those. They questioned whether Jesus' resurrection from the dead was really true. And Paul said, hey, if Jesus' resurrection isn't true, we are all still dead in our sins. And it's pitiful what we do. But in verses 20 to 28, last Easter, Pastor Brian reminded us that Jesus really did rise from the dead. And not only that, Jesus is not just the first, Jesus is just the first to rise. He's the first fruits. We are going to rise too. 
And the last section leading up to ours in those last verses, ending in verse 49, we received instruction, especially last week, about how the dead get raised and what kind of body they'll have. Paul used the illustrations of seeds, of animal flesh, and stars and astronomy to help us understand how these questions are answered. We saw last week that our present bodies of flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God because they're not designed for heaven. That's what death is all about. For the believer, death is simply a way of leaving our earthly bodies, our tabernacles, our tents here, and moving into our new bodies, exchanging our crusty brown bulbs, to use Paul's illustration from last week, for creations of beauty. And so now we get to our passage this week. And even back in chapter 15, verse 26, setting it up, Paul wrote, the last enemy who needs to be defeated is death. You might remember that. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50, transitions here. I tell you this, brothers, almost as if concluding the thoughts of the chapter and setting up for what he wants to say now, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. He's going to repeat this phrase, this contrast, this pairs of thoughts about flesh and blood and imperishable and uh, perishable and mortal and immortality. You see it there multiple times. He does not want us to miss it. The two main statements here are kind of a, a parallel statements. Flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of God. He simply restates it another way. This is not a different thought. It's the same thought again. The perishable does not inherit the imperishable. Our earthly bodies, whether dead or alive, deteriorate. And in the same way how the unrighteous are not fit to inherit the kingdom of God, our earthly bodies are not fit to inherit the kingdom of God. Pastor Brian did a great job with this last week. He, he gave us this idea about going up into space. Our bodies are not suitable for that environment. I just came from the beach. I cannot go into the ocean. My body is not suitable to go down. So God will transform our earthly bodies, the earthly bodies of believers, into heavenly ones. And there is the transition here. What's the main point today? It's very simple. Jesus' triumph secures our transformation. Jesus' triumph secures our transformation. God has to transform our perishable mortal bodies, the bodies of dead and living believers alike, into imperishable immortal bodies. Why? This conclusively defeats death triumphantly. That is the bigger point today. Jesus' triumph secures our transformation. Questions that we would love answered about death. Some of them will bubble out today. Why do we need victory over death? How do we get victory? When will we get victory? How will we know when we have it? What does victory look like? Will victory taste sweet? Can we experience victory today? Or do we have to wait until Jesus comes back? These are just all kinds of things that I think would be important for us to know. So four thoughts today. Number one, in this vision of victory. This is a sudden victory. This is a sudden victory. You know the expression. I felt it this year. 
I can remember one game specifically. We were down. There was not much time on the clock. The ball came into a kid who can make the shot, but it was a little far away. It was a little unusual. The kid ran at him. He let, it's in the air, and I'm just looking at it. It's in the air a long time. You remember, Ian, Ohio? It's in the air a long time. We'd been fighting for 90 minutes, 100 minutes. We'd been working like dogs. We're yelling, we're screaming, you know, competition. Horn went off while the ball was in the air. It's over. There's nothing more to be done. We won. I looked at someone and I said, I'm not used to this. <laughs> it's a sudden victory. Paul announces a mystery. Behold, verse 51. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, Paul announces this mystery. Before he gets to that, we, we, we notice here not every believer will physically die. That's not the mystery. Paul already revealed that in a letter he wrote before this one. Do you know this is one of the earliest letters in the New Testament, but a letter that predated it is the letter of 1 Thessalonians. In a passage you know probably fairly well, Paul wrote, we declare this to you by a word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have died. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. God will suddenly, instantaneously, quickly transform the earthly body of every believer, dead or alive, into a heavenly body. The mystery here is that probably refers more to the timing of this transforming change. How does he describe it in a moment? God will transform our earthly bodies into heavenly bodies. A moment is a split second. As an amplifying thought, he says, in the twinkling of an eye. Now, we think in America, in English, twinkling eyes sparkle with amusement, means to shine brightly with a flash of light. This idea is a time idea. Although I'd like to think my eye will twi twinkle when Jesus calls me home. That is not a bad thought. The term emphasizes speed. What? in English, might often more correctly be referred to as in the blink of an eye. At the last trumpet. I find it interesting that this is referenced here. I mean, there are other references. Isaiah 27, in that day a great trumpet will be blown. Zechariah 9, the Lord will appear over them. His arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet. Even Jesus himself in Matthew 24 said he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. 
Do you remember chapter 14? Can I take you back just to one chapter at the very beginning in the context of speaking in tongues? Don't groan, it'll be quick. And interpreting tongues. In talking about how tongues are not intelligent without an interpretation, Paul referenced a trumpet. He said... If somebody on the trumpet gets up and plays indistinct tunes, no one will get ready for battle. As an illustration of how empty tongues without interpretation is. Some of you remember that? That this, can you imagine the sound? Why didn't any of you pick it up? I didn't even know what it meant. I thought an elephant died. A bugle that plays indistinct sounds rouses no one to battle, Paul said in the last chapter. This is not that trumpet. Just in contrast. This trumpet is effective. This trumpet is distinguishable. And this trumpet makes a difference. Praise the Lord. When this trumpet sounds, it's a sudden victory. When Paul explains this change that's going to happen when the last trumpet sounds and God changes the earthly body of two groups. Dead believers will be resurrected and their bodies will be transformed to their heavenly bodies. And living believers will be transformed who have not died yet. They will be placed into their heavenly bodies. Like caterpillars into butterflies. Not everyone will die. Some will be changed. The Lord Himself shall descend from heaven. Will be changed immediately. This is a sudden victory. Jesus' triumph secures our transformation. This is glorious. I think of Paul's words in Philippians chapter 3 that our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a Savior from there who will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him to put all things into submission. It's glorious. This is a sudden victory. It is not only a sudden victory. It's a total victory. Second thought, it's a total victory. Paul looks at these thoughts and wants us to understand the totality of it. Complete victory, total victory. So many pictures in this passage. I don't know if you picked up on all of them. There's a trumpet. There's inheritance. There's stings. We'll get to that in a minute. There's victory. There's clothing. Paul explains these transformations. Now in verse 53, he repeats himself, but he uses a slightly different construction. He talks about putting clothes off and putting clothes on. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, And this mortal body must put on immortality. God plans to transform our perishable mortal bodies, whether dead or alive, 
into these imperishable, immortal bodies. This Greek word put on means to put on any kind of thing on oneself, to clothe oneself, to put on, to wear. This language is picked up in Ephesians chapter 4 where Paul tells us to put off certain things and put on other things. Paul uses it in Colossians where we're told to clothe ourselves in certain uh, godly characteristics. Our perishable mortal bodies must take on the characteristics of Christ's resurrection body. It will be total and complete this victory. The old things will be put away. The new things will come. Paul writes to the Corinthians in his next letter to them and uses slightly different language, but it's the same idea. He references the tent. And the tent, what he means, is the body you live in right now. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Death is swallowed up in victory. Our hearts tell us this is so because the Word of God declares it to be so. Why is this important? I don't know. Do you have any rips in your tent? Do you have any tears in your tent? Is your tent wearing out? Would you like to be clothed with the heavenly body? Would you like to live in the house that Jesus is preparing for you? Instead of moaning and mourning over believers who have died, we can be truly happy and thankful for them if we understand the big picture of eternity. This is not just a sudden victory. This is a total victory. You know this, but our lives are perishable. And there is not a thing we can do to change that. The greatest athletes, the healthiest people in the world, Solomon told us in the book of Ecclesiastes, they all come to the same end as the laziest and unhealthiest people in the world. How do we get victory over death? We need to go to the source of the power. We're going to see here in a minute that the sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. The sting of death is sin. Human death entered the world through sin. This is a total victory. Those are great encouraging thoughts. But the real power of the passage comes now. Can you believe it? It is not just a sudden victory and a total victory. Those are just vehicles that Paul has already really been talking to you about. Some of this is repetitive from, free, from previous weeks. But what he wants to tell us now is that victory is sweet. It tastes good. It's the best. Third point, victory is sweet. I'm in verse 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. 
We know theologically human death entered the world through sin. Without sin, death has no power. This would not be an issue at all. The original word for sting here was often used to refer to the sting of a bee or a scorpion. So if you're seeing that thought there, you are correct. Without sin, death has no means of stinging the human race. But everyone has been stung. Ephesians 2, chapter 1, reminds us that we were born dead because of the curse of sin. It says that we are dead in our trespasses and sin. If it had said we were stuck in our trespasses and sin, then maybe we could do something about it. We could wiggle our way out if we were stuck in our trespasses and sin. We could call for a friend if we were stuck in our trespasses and sin. But the Bible tells us that we are dead in our trespasses and sin. This is the big picture I want, to take, I want you to take away today. Pastor Brian, last week, uh, I really appreciated the uh, Benjamin Franklin's stone he used in conclusion, in conclusion, and I really appreciated the poem that he read at the beginning about the great consumer death. Consumer, not in the sense of buying things. Maybe I should clarify that, but to eat. Do you see this language here? Death is swallowed up in victory. Interesting as we think about death swallowing everything else up, don't we? Death is the great eater of all things. Death swallows everyone up. We are all swallowed. And so this is a contrast. Paul describes what happens after this transformation. Because of this transformation, what is the end result? Sweet victory. Hebrews chapter 2 says, Since therefore the children we share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise came and did the same things. He became a partaker that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. This fear of death consumes us all. It is a real thing for every one of us. And after God transforms the bodies of believers, Christ will finally, completely, and permanently defeat death. Death will itself become dead. Death shall be no more. Revelation chapter 21 tells us. And these are two, there's quotes here from Isaiah chapter 25 and Hosea chapter 13, but we'll get to that in a minute. Your victory, this sweet victory, you must understand, comes to you over the course of time through four events. First, the resurrection of Jesus. Sure, true, testified to by the passages we have read. Jesus rose from the dead. Secondly, when you place faith in that, you were dead. 
And what does Ephesians further say? That God made you alive through Jesus. Thirdly, at your death. At your death in this life, you will receive. And lastly, at the return of Christ, at the final consummation, you will get the full sweetness. Jesus was stalked by death during his life. Death surrounded him at all times. When Jesus began his public ministry, he went to his hometown synagogue. He opened the scroll of Isaiah. He read it. He said, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. They knew what he meant, declaring himself to be God. You remember what happened? The mob rushed him to the cliff to throw him off. But it was not yet his time. He passed through them. Not long before his crucifixion, John chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus went into the temple in Jerusalem and said, Before Abraham was, I am, declaring himself to be God. Remember what happened? The Jews picked up stones to stone him. But it was not yet his time. He passed through them. John chapter 11, Jesus' dear friend Lazarus dies. Jesus comes to the tomb. I still remember preaching this message. I still remember learning the words describing Jesus as he came to the tomb. Almost snorting like an angry animal. Like a wrestler getting ready for battle. With death. Because it was the great enemy. And Jesus said that he was the resurrection and the life. Jesus himself said that his death would be like Jonah. Who was swallowed by a great fish. Three days and three nights in the fish. But God the Father spoke to the fish, and death could not hold him. And when it came time for Jesus to die, death did not beat him then. The Bible says that after those hours on the cross, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, It is finished! And Jesus surrendered his spirit. And death could not hold him. The grave could not keep him. Jesus swallowed up death, the great swallower. This is a sweet victory. Jesus' death secures our transformation. This idea of death being swallowed up in victory is a... Paul takes these ideas from Isaiah 25. Listen to this quote. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. 
And the pain of his people he will take away from the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Hosea chapter 13, verse 14. I shall ransom them from the power of the grave. I shall redeem them from death. O death, where are your plagues? O grave, where is your sting? I've used some sports images. My wife won't be happy that I say this because we are battling this in my house. So nobody but Jesus should trash talk. Death is swallowed up in victory. And Paul personifies the Old Testament quotes through Jesus. And these are taunts. Death. Death. Where's your victory? Where's your sting? Now this hits me pretty good. And I was laughing with Carmen about it last night. They had my kids down to do a renatine and... Randy, who was up here first this morning, is a beekeeper, which I think is insane. And um, uh, the honey, good. The bees, not so much. Anyone besides me a little skittish around stinging things? Right? I am. A little girl was having a picnic with her father, and she had a serious allergy to bee stings. A bee buzzed around. She became very afraid, seeing the bee the father catches it. Holds it in his hand for a few minutes. And lets it go. After it buzzed around a little bit, the girl says, Dad, why'd you let the bee go? Father showed her his hand. You know what was in it? Stinger. That's what Jesus did for us when he absorbed the, the sting of death. He took it for us. He was our substitute. Paul explains why this is so important and why it's true. The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. We are dead because of sin. Jesus on the cross took the penalty for our sin. It is no wonder at that moment, in the face of sudden victory, in light of total victory, with the taste of sweet victory, it is sweet. Revelation chapter 20 says, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Interesting, fire consumes things too, doesn't it? It swallows things up. This is the second death. And then positively stating in verse 21, Jesus will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will be no more. And there will be no more mourning, no more crying and no pain, for the former things have passed away. Death may have stalked Jesus through his ministry to swallow him up, but Jesus swallowed death. And it is no doubt that because of the sudden victory and the total victory and the sweet victory, that in verse 57, Paul writes, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We needed it. We were dead. Last thought. Verse 58. Now let's take a victory lap. Point four. We're doing it right now, by the way. Your life is a victory lap. Not quite there yet. By the way, can I make one little comment here for you? 
57 verses of doctrine for one verse of application. <laughs> you feel that? Don't ever let anyone tell you that doctrine is not important. It grounds us that we would be immovable. Ephesians 4 says if we don't have doctrine, we will be tossed around. In contrast to verse 58. Verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast. Immovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Our motivation for steadfastness is not in our own chance to win. Therefore, probably is the most important word in the verse. Because of the 57 verses of doctrine, this can be true of you. Without the 57 verses of doctrine, this could not be true of you. We don't have to be moved by things that would normally throw us off course when we're focused on winning. It's kind of like me watching film of a game that we've already won to learn from it. I know we already won, so I'm watching film and I'm breaking it down. I'm not nervous about whether we're going to win or lose. <laughs> I already know the outcome. I can enjoy it. I can learn from it. I can pay even more attention to detail. But I watch it without anxiousness. I watch it without fear. Because of the work of Jesus. Three commands. Be steadfast. This word means to be firmly and solidly in place. Previously in the Bible, in the First Corinthians, we were told to stand in the gospel and stand firm. Stand in the faith. Standing firm uh, affirms that God will do this. Regardless of what is happening in your life. In my pastoral prayer, I said, and I've been aware of this all week, that I have a triumphant passage to preach, and in God's providence, He gave me an untriumphant week. Have you ever had an untriumphant week? I'm sure He did that so that I would declare to you better that the triumph is in Jesus, not in us. And even in a moment when it looks like we might not win, I declare to you, the victory will be sudden, the victory will be total, and the victory will be sweet. And when things are not going well from your perspective for a moment, remember, the victory will be sudden, the victory will be total, and the victory will be complete. Secondly, be immovable. Nothing must move us. Nothing must move us from our doctrine. Nothing must move us from our commitment to the Christ. Nothing must move us from our commitment to the resurrection of the dead. We must be immovable. Those two words have more to do with what we think and feel and who we are. About our faith. One verb has a little bit to do with what we do. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. This translates a word that means to be outstanding, to be prominent, to excel. We are to excel in our labor towards one another. Whatever our regular activity, work, occupation, task, every task God calls us to should be in the Lord. 
whether we're evangelizing unbelievers, building up the church, it might be fulfilling our vocational responsibilities, it might be in your marriage, parent-child relationships, brother and sister relationships, being a church member, a volunteer, an employee, a citizen, a neighbor, always abounding in the work of the Lord. It's His game. He won. And then God, you know, I need to write that praise team back to the platform here as we're finishing up. The last little section here. God gives us the reason for these commands. I have tried really, really hard to honor the spirit of this last little phrase in the passage and message this morning. He ends with a reminder. Remember this, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Vanity. Being useless, devoid of any value. Do you remember? Chapter 15, earlier. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Paul said, if there's no resurrection, then our preaching's in vain. Your faith is in vain. And you are still in your sins. And this is pitiful. I've lied to you this morning. If Jesus is not raised. And all this victory that I'm declaring to you is a bunch of self-help nonsense. Paul said, work for the Lord and your labor will not be in vain. And I will agree to this, so much of what we do with our time, our energy and money is in vain. So much of what we do is going to fall apart, pass away, break down. It's all going to burn one day. But what we do for the Lord the worship we give Him, the work we do for Him, the works and, and gifts we bring to Him will not be in vain. Friends, even if it seems like what you're doing for Him is not making a very big impact, it is not in vain. Friends, even if you feel like life is not winning for you, you are winning if you are in Christ. The Lord does not pay you on the hour. He does not pay you by commission. We are faithful servants. Be faithful to what God has called you to do and leave the results to Him. You remember the book of Ecclesiastes? Vanity of vanities, says Solomon. All is vanity. Paul says, no. Thanks be to God for the victory we have through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Give honor to Tim Keller this morning. Teacher of mine has recently gone to be with the Lord. And he said this, If Jesus is risen, 
then nothing else matters. <laughs> and if Jesus is not risen, then nothing else matters. <laughs>